Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio studios here on Only Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're on 8KNFM here in Ambato, Alice Springs. We're also coming to you online from the Karma website. That's uh, karma.com.au. It's the start of the working week. It's the 3rd of June uh, on a Monday, uh, 2019. I'm Kyle Dowling, your host for the program today. We're coming up on Strong Voices uh, the, at the Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre. Uh, $10 million was announced for refurbishments of the Central Australian facility by the uh, Minister for Territory Families, Daya Wakefield, at a press conference last Thursday. We're going to be hearing uh, some of what uh, the Minister for Territory Families had to say in regards to the facility here in Alice Springs, in regards to youth detention, and as well as uh, what's happening up in Darwin with the possible replacement of the Dondau Youth Detention Centre, which was one of the uh, recommendations that came out of the uh, Royal Commission into Youth Detention here in the Northern Territory. Well, last week as well was, uh, of course, National Reconciliation Week as uh, many people came together from across the country. And we're going to be hearing uh, a discussion that Lorena Walker had late last week with the uh, co-chair of Reconciliation Australia, uh, Melinda Salento, about the importance of understanding and acceptance when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous Australians. Of course, as well, we're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well. G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head into our first story now. Uh, the Northern Territory Government has said it wants to deliver a stronger youth justice system that ensures young people face the consequences of their actions and make better choices about their future. At a press conference uh, last Thursday at the Alice Springs uh, Youth Detention Centre, uh, the Minister for Territory Families, Day Wakefield, made a range of announcements, including uh, funding allocated towards uh, upgrades to the facility here in Central Australia, as well as uh, for the top end uh, with the potential, with the replacement of uh, the Dondale facility. Today we're announcing $10 million to expand the footprint of the Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre with some expansion of capacity but ensuring that we've got the space so that our staff can work with young people to get them back on track and change their behaviour. This is about ensuring that we've got the right consequences in place for young people. This is on top of our $60 million investment into the Dondale facility, as well as our previous announcements of $3 million into the Barclay Youth Work Camp, as well as um, $10 million into infrastructure for other um, diversion programs. 
Why is the government not building a new youth justice facility in Alice Springs? Are you concerned about a public backlash like you had at Pinelands? Uh, we are working on a range of options for the Central Australian Southern Region. We've previously announced the um, Barclay Youth Work Camp. We um, know that in the medium term we will need to look at a, a, a new facility in the Alice Springs Region, but at this stage we want to expand what we're um, doing here at the moment as well as um, growing those other options that are about Indigenous people getting back on country um, and learning practical skills in settings such as the work camp. At the moment we have a cap of 18. Um, we are looking at some expansion so that we can deal with any surges that we may have in the Central Australian region, um, but we will be also looking at those other options as well to ensure that we've got a range of options for young people in the southern region. Are there people at the Dondale facility that are originally from Central Australia or Alice Springs? Yes, there are. Um, we continue to have flow between the two facilities. We know that's not ideal, but there are circumstances where we do need to have young people from Central Australia to access services and to ensure um, community and, and worker safety um, within the two facilities. So we will continue to do that as needed. However, we do want to make sure the facilities in Alice Springs are better able to deal with a wide range of young people, and that is what that $10 million investment is about. When will you begin upgrading this facility? Um, we are in the design process. We've had design tender um, people in place for several months now, so we're well advanced in the planning stage. We know what we need in this facility. We're starting to work on the detail of that. We're looking at tenders going out um, in July and building commencing by the end of the year. Are sentence detainees separated from those who are on remand? Um, no, that is not necessarily the case. We do look at making sure we've got a mix of young people, um, but in, in general, the separation between young people is about behaviour and um, privileges within the um, facility, um, and as well as assessment around risk and um, who might be the combination of young people within the facility. Where will the new facility in Darwin be built? And if no decision has been made, when will it be made? We're, um, today we're announcing that $60 million will be put aside for that facility. Um, it was a, a recommendation of the Royal Commission that we replace that facility. Um, we are looking at a suitable site at the moment. That work is continuing. Um, we have said, um, after listening to the community and the community concerns about um, the Pineland site, that we would go back to the drawing board. We are doing that and we will um, be in a position to announce further things um, soon. Do you know when the new Darwin facility will be ready? Uh, we are working through those issues. Once we have a site, we will be able to look at what the logistics and the particular um, challenges might be to that site. There's no perfect site for this type of facility and each site has its challenges and that will impact on the, the time um, to build it. Given it will cost $60 million to replace Dondale and the government only allocated $70 million in total to replace both Dondale and Alice Springs, doesn't it show that your decision not to replace the Alice Springs facility is a budget-saving measure? This is about making sure we've got the right um, facilities in the right place. We want to make sure that we're investing in a range of facilities. In the southern region, we know that there are a, a range of young people from a range of locations. One of the things the Royal Commission said very clearly is we need to consider other options to detention. We're doing that with the Barclay Youth Work Camp as well as some other um, programs including wilderness camps. We think the combination of all of those um, programs together will mean that we can build a facility and be certain that that facility will be future-proofed in the way forward. There are quite a few submissions made on um, youth justice uh, legislation today. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of them, they kind of mention um, the need to 
fight in you know onerous bail conditions mm -hmm. and not make it a criminal offence to breach bail for children? Is, mm -hmm. that, is that something that you see value in? The legislation that's before the parliament at the moment is about giving our frontline staff and judges and police the right tools to change young people's behaviours. That is the ultimate goal of any youth justice legislation. We There needs to be consequences in place when children do the wrong thing, but when they do um, break the law, young, young people need to have a system that responds to their needs in a way that changes their behaviour. That is the focus of the legislation. We'll continue to work with police and a range of other um, uh, stakeholders to ensure we get the best legislation in place. That's why we have a scrutiny committee um, process so that a range of voices are heard to make sure we get the best possible legislation that gives the frontline staff the tools to do what they need to do. What, what are the, the major changes that you see are necessary today? to the legislation? Yes. Yeah. We need to provide that flexibility and operational flexibility to frontline staff. We need a range of diversion options so that young people meets their behaviour and is focused on changing their behaviour. That is what the legislation is there to do. It is to give judges, police and other um, youth justice officers the, the range and the parameters of making the right decision to keep the community safe as well as focusing on consequences for young people that are actually focused on changing their behaviour. But what, how will that be achieved? Um, there's a range of um, areas within that legislation. There's Give me a focus. Of the range. Yep, there is a range of things in, in that legislation, including um, changes and, and focus on the bail conditions to make sure we're focusing on making sure that young people are accountable for their behaviour when they're on bail, that the police have a very clear decision making matrix to deliver those um, outcomes. We also have a range of um, things that give the judges the ability to make the right decision that is focused on community safety. Did you consider raising the age of criminal responsibility? Um, we have accepted that recommendation from the Royal Commission. We, though, are very clear that changing the law does not change the problem. We know that people under 14 um, continue um, to break laws and we need to have responses in place for them before we would even consider changing the law. At the moment, we're focusing on our Back on Track program, which has an element of working with 8 to 12-year-olds and a, an increased focus on that group so that we're preventing criminals before they become into the, um, the, the focus of the justice system. This is about making sure we've got a very flexible system that intervenes as early as possible so we prevent crime before it happens. Is it true that the initial draft of the Youth Justice Amendments would have raised the age of criminal responsibility? Why was it changed? We have, as I said, um, said that that is a part of the um, Youth Justice, um, the, the Royal Commission that we did accept. We have said that we will look at it again um, when we look at the whole Act, which we will do um, in the future. This is a first step of those amendments. We need to make sure that the service system um, is in place to support those changes and that is one of the reasons why again we're announcing the, the upgrade to facilities today which will focus on education and a range of other things that's about giving kids the pathway because we've got to have the infrastructure and the staff and the programs in place to support any legal changes. But was it in the initial draft of the bill? I have seen several drafts of that bill. Um, we know we have had significant discussions with stakeholders about it. We are aware that the lawyers were very keen for that to happen, but we, as a department, as a government, as a minister, I need to think of a range of issues and I need to make sure that there are the service delivery and we have confidence we have the service delivery there before we make any changes to the law. So you're saying, no, it wasn't in the initial legislation? I, 
well, I have, as I said, there's been several drafts of that legislation. There is another draft before the scrutiny committee um, together. When will you be able to make an announcement on the location of the Darwin Centre? We're still going through a range of options. We want to make sure that we have as much detailed information um, to give the community about why we are making decisions. It is a difficult piece of work and we'll continue to do that till we get it right. The intention was to have the, this facility in town to make it easier for family to keep in touch with the children. This is about 30 kilometres out of town. Is that going to be a problem? Um, I, don't, I don't remember Erwin having any intention to have the youth facility in town. We did look at what the other options were for the location. Um, one of the, the recommendations the Royal Commission was to look at location to youth facilities um, being close to adult facilities. We have considered a range of locations in Alice Springs. There are limited options within Alice Springs. We did have some initial discussions with Desert Knowledge Australia and the ASRI site. I had very clear and very strong feedback from the community that that wasn't a location that they felt was necessary at this stage. That's why we've made the decision to expand this site here. Looking forward, we will look at what the options are for a longer term solution. It may be that this type of facility in, in the um, location of Central Australia needs to be in a remote location. We need to look at all of those options. We'll start doing some of that work with the Barclay Youth Work Camp, um, looking at remote camps as well for young people, wilderness camps, which are working well with the ones we're running at the moment. Uh, we need to have a range of facilities um, and by expanding this one, making it better, we're giving ourselves the chance to build a system that works well for our unique situation in Central Australia. Why are you now considering withdrawing the clause that would have confirmed that arrest should only be used as a last resort for young people? We've had feedback from police that this is about ensuring that um, operationally on the ground that um, police have as many tools as possible to make the decision. It is part of the general police orders that police, um, that arrest should be the last resort. Uh, we're getting some advice that maybe enshrining that in legislation is not the right way to go in terms of giving the police on the front line the right tools. We're considering that advice. That is why we go through a scrutiny committee process so that we get a range of views on the legislation. Why aren't you getting rid of the offensive breach of fail? breach of bail like the Royal Commission said you should and what will that mean in practice? My understanding is that we will be removing that offence of the breach of bail. Um, what we are doing and one of the things that is being put before the scrutiny committee is to be really clear that young people will still be breached on bail. If a young person breaches their bail they will go back to court on their original crime. Adding an additional um, offence only adds to the paperwork of frontline police, um, does not add value to the outcome and we want to make sure we've got a very effective system where kids are held to account effectively and efficiently um, and that is why we're making those changes. Why aren't you following the Royal Commission's recommendation that the four-hour time limits that kids can be held without charge? And there are some practical issues in terms of remote communities that we really need to look at. We've put additional checks and balances um, in place to make sure that police in, uh, when children are in police custody, there is a range of safeguards and transparency, increased transparency around that. But we also have to acknowledge that we are a very large place in the Territory, that um, young people often have to travel distances 
and we need to have the flexibility to respond to those unique conditions within the Territory. Some of your backbenchers have expressed concerns about proposed legislation to close the youth court. Are you willing to remove that provision? We have um, already considered um, what the options are for um, the provision of allowing um, transparency by allowing reporters into the court to report on issues of youth crime. We do think it is important that there is a sense of privacy um, within the court, but we also want to get the balance right, ensuring that media can scrutinise the process and that we have a transparent system. Would it perhaps just be more appropriate to open the court but just to, I guess, suppress the names? We're looking at what the options are in other states. There are a range of other um, systems. We think probably the Victoria model is the most, gets the balance the most right, um, ensuring that no member of the public can just wander in and hear quite personal details of victims as well as young people. Can I ask uh, just very briefly, uh, you know, uh, what services and um, support so we've got a range of programs running in the Alice Springs um, facility at the moment. We've got um, the First Steps program are running the football program through here. We have Congress coming through here to provide health services. Um, we also have some mentor programs through the Desert Knowledge Australia. The aim of all those programs is about making sure that there are services that are already engaged with people. And one of the things this $10 million will deliver is more spaces for services to come in and see um, children privately or deliver services. At the moment, we have quite a site-constrained process which does limit the amount of services that can come into the site. We need to make sure that when children are in detention, they are given the opportunities to change their behaviour and that support is given to them once they leave here to, um, to become part of our community again. Just uh, returning to the initial draft of the bill that would have raised uh, the age of criminal responsibility, um, it is in the written questions for witnesses document that went up on the scrutiny's, uh, scrutiny community's website um, that uh, it was recommended in the initial draft. Yes, and we have, um, as a government, as I said, made a very clear decision that we are not changing the law does not change the problem. We need to have all of those services in place to make sure that we um, are providing services for people under the age of 14 if they are coming to the attention of the police to prevent crime before it happens and we have an early intervention model. When we have those systems in place and we are sure they're working, we will reconsider the um, age of criminal responsibility. That was Dale Wakefield there, the uh, Minister for Territory Family, speaking at a press conference at the uh, Alice Springs uh, Youth Detention Centre. We're going to head to a song now. We'll be going into the uh, newsroom in the country very shortly, though, so stick around. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You are listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. I'm very happy. I'm very happy uh, to welcome into the Karma Studio Karma's uh, Paul Wiles and Lorena Walker. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Paul, we'll start with you. I understand heading across to Western Australia uh, for another interesting announcement from in regards to the Western Australian Police there. Well, the uh, West Australian Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson, is on fire. He's um, certainly saying the right things. He's talking now about the vast volume of Aboriginal children that are, are charged with a criminal offence. He says that they could be dealt with through community justice arrangements and not end up in custody. Yeah. 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in Western Australia, uh, this is uh, courtesy of The Guardian, are 27 times more likely to be put under youth justice supervision than non-Indigenous children, which is second only to the Northern Territory where every child in custody is is Aboriginal. It's not a great statistic that uh, we can be proud of and uh, I'm sure, uh, as we've been hearing from Dale Wakefield, um, something that they are trying to uh, address and uh, um, make some more positive changes. But um, just getting back to Chris Dawson, the Western Australian Police Commissioner, uh, he's uh, saying uh, there's a broader push to address why Aboriginal children who are found by police to be breaking the law are more likely to end up in court than non-Indigenous children who uh, are more likely to be placed in uh, diversionary programs. Um, He says, I don't think there's a systemic racism. Uh, Well, we'll try and get on to Chris Dawson because I'd like to have that conversation with him. I'm not at all saying it's a totally free zone in terms of any elements of racism, but I would not characterise it and nor does the cultural safety audit audit conducted last year uh, characterise it as being systemic. But um, Chris Dawson is saying uh, many of the things that people have been talking about now, uh, justice reinvestment programs, uh, programs in communities that actually engage with the young Aboriginal people to keep them occupied, to keep them engaged and uh, to give them something to feel proud about. Uh, I think if the amount of money that was put into uh, prisons and building bigger prisons was put into community youth programs um, out in the communities, uh, the the return would be invaluable. Yeah. Mm. Definitely be very interesting to hear well, what he would have to say. Well, we're trying to see if we can organise an interview with Chris Dawson. Mm. On to our next story. We're heading across to you, Lorena. I understand some uh, Aboriginal sisters using social media in a, in a unique way to share some, some great messages. Yeah, so two sisters, uh, the names are Marley Silva and Keely. Uh, they're using a social media page to um, raise awareness or showcasing the achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women from across the country. So um, they've got a face, uh, sorry, they've got a, not Facebook, they've got an Instagram account uh, called Titters for Titters. And yeah, they're really just trying to um, put out there to the rest of the country yeah just the great achievements that um women are doing across the country and um i suppose well last week it was um national reconciliation week so they they use that week to showcase um some of the their their achievements and continue to you know get a, a large following on social media great to see you know and i think it's it's great to see them utilizing a platform like that as we know a lot of uh, mob, not just in, in cities, but in communities as well, uh, on f- things like Facebook, on Instagram and things like that. And I, I think it's a great way in terms of being able to get in touch with people because we do hear a lot of in terms of, you know, uh, negative stories about, you know, bullying or things like that happening through social media. But to see great stories like this where people will be able to, you know, push through positive messages, I think is great. Yeah, and she mentions, um, well, she says she believes non-Indigenous people have to treat uh, problems of Indigenous Australia as if it were their own um, to, I, I suppose, sort of bridge that gap between, or, you know, the, yeah, bridge the gap between Aboriginal 
Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous uh, people in this country. So, yeah. Well, on that, mm, mm. on that note, uh, Lorena, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank, thank you. you. We're going to head to a quick break now and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Strong Voices this Monday morning. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head to our next uh, interview now. Late last week was, of course, National Reconciliation Week. And late last week, uh, Karma's Luna Walker did speak with co-chair of Reconciliation Australia, Melinda Salento, about the importance of understanding and acceptance when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous Australians. I'm co-chair of Reconciliation Australia. My fellow co-chair is Tom Kalmer, who I'm sure will be known to many of your listeners. I am the CEO of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, as well as uh, being involved with Reconciliation Australia. And I'm living in Melbourne at the moment, but a long time ago, actually born in the US. It is a very uh, important week for Australia, and it is the National Reconciliation Week. Why should we as a nation take more care in this week celebrating? National Reconciliation Week is a time when we get to talk about things that maybe get missed for the rest of the year. So we spend a lot of time in the rest of the year talking about things like Indigenous policy and education and employment, all those things that are really important. But this is a week when we get to talk about relationships and when we get to talk about relationships that I think are really important to our country. Uh, And that is the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the wider Australian community. So that's why I think it's important. And this year I think is really important because it's about the sort of courageous conversations that we think we need to have in this country. People think of reconciliation. It's like, why why should we talk about it? Why should it affect me? And what is reconciliation? Is it something that it can be whatever we want it to be? It means a lot of things to different people, obviously. But for me, it is about that the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the wider community. And it's about my relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it's about you know, the community's relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And why do I think it's important? Because I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and culture and tradition is just, should be seen as a huge strength for this nation. It is something that we have, which makes us a better and more interesting place. And because I think at the moment, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, don't have the same opportunities as many other Australians. And they're experiencing things like racism and that's not um, a great place to be, quite honestly. No, it isn't. And racism should not be accepted anywhere uh, to anyone. And when we talk about reconciliation, is it a, a non-Indigenous, uh, Indigenous, or as a whole, is it, is it a government issue? It's an issue for all Australians. And it's it's an issue for government, and it's an issue for business, and it's an, it's an issue for you and me, quite frankly. And I think all of us have a role to play in trying to understand our nation's history and to understand that from all perspectives. And so when I sit down with my average Aboriginal friends and talk to them about their families, their lived experiences today as Aboriginal people, and we get to talking about their family and their their elders and previous generations, and you get this this wonderful thread of their lives, but you also get a perspective on how hard and challenging that's been, and quite frankly, how hard and challenging it continues to be in some ways. And so opening your eyes to those conversations and those realities is how um, you get to a place where you we, we better understand each other, and we have that foundation of respect which is really what we need to build a better future for all Australians. When we're talking about reconciliation, really trying to get people on the same page, you know, the wider 
Australian community on the same page when there is the conversation about uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history of this country and trying to move forward together in a positive way? Yeah, I mean, if we want to move forward in a positive way, we've got to do that with a shared understanding of history. And it's, it's not about blame or guilt or it's just, it's just actually about understanding and understanding how what's happened in the past continues to be reflected in what's happening today and if we're going to make tomorrow different to today we need to understand where we're starting from and what's got us there and then actually work out what, what a better path is in the future but if we don't do that with understanding each other's perspectives and understanding how some of the things that have happened in this country have been damaging to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities then I just don't know how we honestly move forward you know, in a, in a true, truly respectful relationship. Melinda, can you tell us some more about the Australian Reconciliation Barometer? So the Australian Reconciliation Barometer is something that Reconciliation Australia puts together. We get someone to go out and survey a huge number of Australians and we ask them about their attitudes and perceptions on key issues around reconciliation. So um, we ask them about trust, we ask them about whether having a shared knowledge of our history is important, whether honest conversations about that's important, whether the uh, Aboriginal for, for the people who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who who partake in the survey, what their lived experience has been, have they experienced racism, all of those kinds of things, so we can get a measurable picture of how we think we're travelling and where we think we need to do better. You know, the different ways that we can all be involved in in one way or another um, when it comes to Reconciliation Weeks. I know people are celebrating all over the country and doing different parts to be one step closer to, to knowing each other. Yeah, and I think, you know, I guess the message that I would put out there is the smallest step in terms of improving um, awareness and understanding and knowledge is a, is a really important step forward. So, you know, one of the things that people can do is go to our website, reconciliation.org.au. You can find out about a whole bunch of National Reconciliation Week events that are happening all over the country. You can go and get some information about what reconciliation means and what um, Australia's history has been and how that has impacted Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And you can also go and have a look at some tools that we have which help schools and organisations through our Reconciliation Action Plan program to think about how they can have an impact on reconciliation every day in the things that they do. Are there any more important messages that you would like to put out there to the community uh, about this week? I think the, the most important message is start a conversation. If we want to understand each other better, you just you just need to start it with a conversation. And I've been privileged to experience the generosity of so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've shared their stories with me. It's really helped me to better understand. And I think it's given me a completely different perspective, not on only on history, but on the lives uh, that we live today and how we can do things a little bit differently. So it's as easy and as hard as a conversation. And if people want to get information, you've got the web websites um, that people can go to as well. Yep, reconciliation.org.au. You find uh, just an awful lot of stuff there that's worth having a look at. Uh, and you're, you're uh, non-Indigenous yourself, but why is it important to have um, both non-Indigenous and Indigenous um, for Reconciliation Australia? So Karen Mundine is the CEO of Reconciliation Australia. So she she's in charge of all the day-to-day operations and she is absolutely amazing. Um, the two co-chairs of Reconciliation Australia are myself and Tom Calmer. Yep. And we, we oversee the board, which helps the, the team of Reconciliation Australia sort of think about the things that they have to do and oversee their strategy and things like that. So 
Karen runs the day-to-day operations and Tom and I are sort of the, the sort of heads of the board that oversee um, everything that Reconciliation Australia is doing. Melinda, I just want to say a huge thank you for taking the time out today and talking to us here on the Carmen Network. Absolute pleasure and uh, enjoy National Reconciliation Week. Yes, that was the co-chair of Reconciliation Australia there, Melinda Slanter there, speaking with Karma's Lorena Walker. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, Internationally recognised award-winning Australian architect, Professor Peter Stutchbury, has had a long connection with Aboriginal people, which began when he helped design shelters for them uh, back in Wilcannia in the 1970s as part of his final year thesis. Professor Peter Stutchbury was a keynote speaker at the recent TEDx in Sydney. When I was fresh out of architecture school, I used to listen to my uncle's stories about Papua New Guinea. He was a missionary up there. And I took it upon myself to go up and help him design and build a church. And in that, that indicated why these countries were set up in terms of sustainability. When we arrived, we didn't really pay attention to those patterns. We subdivided the land in a way which was disrespectful and today we're mining it and we're sending boatloads of dirt overseas without valuating at all that's what's got us through the great financial crisis i've always wondered why we have summer winter autumn spring i don't get that i don't see leaves falling off the tree i don't see a lot of snow everywhere The Aboriginal people had anything from four to 11 seasons, depending on where they were in the country. Sydney has six seasons, which you can see up on the images there. And those seasons relate to animals moving through the country. They relate to flora that's flowering at a particular time. They relate to food you can and can't eat. They relate to weather patterns. And it seems to me like somewhere along the line, we've missed the boat. The image on the left-hand side is a stolen generation lady from the Kimberleys. And I saw this painting when I was in Broome and I was quite amazed by it. I felt it sort of connected me with the place but I couldn't understand why. The the painting on the right-hand side is the wonderful Fred Williams. But the difference in these two paintings is really profound. One painting paints from the land through the body into the soul and the other one paints through the eyes. One's an elevation and one's a plan. They're very different ways of seeing the place. I got in a plane to fly back to Sydney and I flew over the salt pans and I saw her painting. How did she know that painting? She'd never flown in her life. I'm worried that we follow each other. I'm worried that we follow a leader that may not be a good leader. I'm worried that we do things that may be relevant to today's world in terms of what it's been talked about today, climate change, all that sort of stuff. If you put a, a mob of sheep, I actually say this is a mob of people coming out of the MCG, but it's actually sheep. <laughs> and I've moved a lot of sheep in my time, but if you put a mob of sheep into a paddock, they'll walk into the wind and they might walk straight past a water source depending on whether they can smell it or not. We need to be particularly careful at this time in our lives. The two biggest resources into the future aren't coal, they aren't iron ore, they're food and water. 
unquestionably clean water and good food. We've just seen an authority in New South Wales, a public authority, make a fundamental mistake about water. How can you kill two million native fish? What were we doing? What were we thinking? So water is a big one. The other one is food. At the moment, the only two industries going backwards in our country are agriculture and the arts. It came out recently in a table. The corn that you can see in this image is what's called Roundup Ready corn. It's been produced for 20 years in America. It's GM-modified corn. So you can spray that corn with Roundup and you can kill all the bugs in it because it's resistant to Roundup. And then you can put it on the supermarket shelf and eat it. And we wonder, like we've got this epidemic of disease. <laughs> we wonder where it comes from. We, me and another professor, have just taken students to the Western Desert where we were building, doing a design-build project. And you can see on the left-hand side to you, you can see the students communicating around a fire, cooking under the stars. I took that photograph in Jakarta the other day, two people talking to each other on a motorbike. When I was a kid, I learnt by playing, not playing on a screen, playing really where you could fall over and break your leg or you could put your hand on a nest. It was a different form of learning altogether. While I was in New Guinea, a lovely lady who was the village leader down on the Fly River walked me into the forest for about an hour. As we were walking, we passed an old man carving a paddle. It turned out to be her father. As we got into the forest, she showed me this log being carved into a canoe for 20 people for her village. Her grandfather planted the rosewood tree for her to make a canoe, her, his grandchild, thinking about generations ahead and thinking about generations behind. It was talked about a little bit earlier, wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from the refinement of knowledge. The Aboriginal people are incredibly good at that. That is their philosophy, that they're just here in this world to refine the knowledge from their elders down to the younger people, which is what good teaching's about. Computers don't refine knowledge. They have information, and they're really good at that. If I want information about this talk, I Google it, but I get no emotion out of a computer, and I get no mistakes, and I get no advice. We used to be creative. I went to look for a car the other day and I became extremely confused. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It's true though. I remember my father coming home from work with books of cars saying, and choose this colour, this sort of car, this shape, and it was a wonderful event. What's happened to our creativity? Where's it gone? What's it been dulled by? When the Europeans first arrived in Australia, there were very simple structures here. And, and they were looked at in terms, not in terms of why are they simple structures, but in terms of the structures that the Europeans were used to. These structures are incredibly appropriate in terms of climate. The top is the Cadman's Cottage, opposite that is Cornwall Cottage in England, then Paddington in Sydney and Paddington in London, then a house on the north shore of Sydney and a house in Kyoto. These buildings are almost identical. 
the most important thing I think about architecture is the mark that you make in the landscape or that you don't make in the landscape. And then the other thing is how the building might nurture you, how it might help you or work with your soul or, or, or give you the ability to read your soul or understand your soul. It's an incredibly, it's the most fundamental point of architecture. Connection to the landscape, because the landscape is our history, is very much part of that. And if you design a building so it can be passively heated and cool, it works incredibly well. Place, buildings for place are really important because if it's a building for place, it explains place. Earth, wind, air, fire and water, the elements, where are they in our buildings? Where are they in our lives? The hacker villages in southern China were the most remarkable buildings, 360 people per building in the world. Those people have moved out of those buildings into the buildings on the right. What's the social and psychological implications of that? We were given that brick building on the left-hand side to change and Belinda Cooperman and myself decided to put a big veranda and a ventilator on the roof and the change has been radical. This problem is not just an Australian problem, this is a worldwide problem, this is Brazil, where my partner Fernanda and her wonderful sister Flavia have created the opportunity for us to work in a favela there. This is where we're working, an old kindergarten, and we've taken students over for three years. We've put three additions on the kindergarten, a veranda, a water room where you can catch water, which isn't done, a ventilating kitchen and a sunscreen. We've worked with the people really closely. We've taught them how to filter water because that wasn't part of their language. And we've built structures that are appropriate to that culture, to a tropical culture. We've, we've introduced hygienic conditions to the favela. We've got a water room and the students stay with the people. They're getting an education that we, is just rare, impossible to get. And we've produced a building now which is innocent and, and simple, but has become the centre of the favela. For 20 years, Lindsay Johnson set up 20 years ago this non-for-profit organisation which teaches about this stuff. The teachers are Britt Anderson, Glenn Merkett, Uncle Max Dillamumman, Aboriginal elder, you and Aboriginal elder, Rick Paxi and myself. We've had over 2,000 architects from 80 different countries who believe in this sort of, these values. How do we translate this into a building today? I think it's really simple. We transplant that longhouse, the values of the longhouse, the origins of the longhouse. We make a building that's recyclable, low embodied energy, sustainable, can be dismantled, passively heated and cooled, not a big footprint, and yet it's got to have beauty and it's got to have serenity in order to be architecture. Thank you very much. That was uh, award-winning Australian architect there, Professor Peter uh, Stutchbury, speaking at a recent uh, TEDx in Sydney. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this Monday morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you wanted to listen back to any of the stories or interviews that we played on the program today, we'll be posting up a podcast of the program 
on uh, Karma's SoundCloud. Thank you once again, and we'll be back the same time tomorrow from uh, 11 to 12. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Strong voices. Good job.